You are tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. Back to MNEA Connects. I'm Andy Slaughter, NEA Director, and your guest host for today's episode. This will be part three of our conversation about what it means to be a teacher in the age of cell phones and social media. I'm very excited to introduce today's special guest, Dr. Deanna Massey. Dr. Massey is an award-winning professor at Lewis and Clark College in Illinois and a widely traveled researcher and presenter on how to communicate effectively. And as it happens, also a member of the National Education Association. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Massey. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So while what much of what our series has focused on in the previous episodes is the effects social media and cell phones have on kids, but as a teacher of young adults and other, you know, other age adults, what effects do you see social media and constant digital distraction having on those you instruct? And how does it affect how they communicate and perform in your space? Um, you know, I'm... I'm- poised at a pretty interesting spot because I teach freshman English comp and a lot of those, you know, they're first year college students to the traditional college age, right? But I also have a ton of high school seniors in those classes and I have a lot of returning adults. So I get to see this whole spectrum. And right now I have access to this, well, the last few years, really, uh, just generations of students who have never known life without social media, who have never known life without a cell phone and constant access to all the information in the world in their hands. And those people are in the same room with adults slightly older than I am who had to sort of figure all those things out and who use their cell phone sometimes as a last resort. They're like, oh yeah, I can, <laughs> I can Google that. Oh yeah, I can do that. So I get to see all of that happening in one space. Um, In the beginning, when cell phones were really just sort of, you know, beginning to become popular and they weren't really affordable for everybody, it was a concern for us in higher ed. Um, When they became more accessible and more ubiquitous, they became a serious problem. And now that has shifted the other way and it's just been normalized. It's just a part of, of our existence in that room. So as far as how it affects the way they communicate, I would say it has become an extension of their, almost of their physical selves. They do not operate without their phones in their hands or within inches of their computer. Like they are always plugged into their phones. Um, And they are always sort of live streaming their lives. You know, they're in my class working on an essay or, you know, doing peer reviews or, you know, interacting with me. But they're also Snapchatting about that or Instagramming about that. They will, they will Instagram me working with them on their paper. They'll share that with their friends. They'll, they'll send that information out. So it's like they are always experiencing the moment through that lens of sharing it, putting it out there. How are other people going to see this? It is constant. It's like another part of themselves. And in some ways that's interesting and good because they are constantly in connection with people. Um, but it does affect their performance because they are constantly distracted. (laughs) They are never really 
mindful in the moment with me, there's always that background noise of documenting the moment, sharing the moment. Why, why is it, why do you think that like kids, let's say even like college students and even to some degree adults like ourselves, why do we feel the need to document those moments? Like anymore, you go to a concert, you go to a, Mm -hmm. you go to anywhere, you you see a lot of cell phones up in the air, (laughs) more interested in videoing the moment than actually experience at that, at that time, which does take away from the experience. I've tried to do it. I'm like, I don't like recording stuff because it's very hard to experience those moments. Uh, I feel like you're losing something. You are. And if you go back and watch the video, it doesn't even come close to capturing what it was like. You know, it's just like this watered down, tinny version of what happened. I think part of it is, you know, culturally, they're existing in a society where they need constant affirmation. Um, They need, and all of this is obviously generalized, right? I'm saying they like it's all of them, but I think the majority of them, they need someone to thumbs up heart like what they're doing what they're saying um it's a social cue that lets them know that they're okay that they're doing right that they are accepted not that different from what we do when we're speaking face to face when we're just in you know regular social interactions um but that that tool has moved online and they depend on that affirmation and when they don't get it there is a, there's a real, uh, there's a stress response to that. Um, you've, you've also done some lecturing, some, uh, teaching in the corporate world as well. Yeah. Um, and some, and some keynote speeches. And I've talked to some other people that have done uh, adult education in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And they say cell phones are just as much of a distraction to the adults mm-hmm. as they are to a lot of our kids. Uh, how is it, is it, is it different in that space or is it basically the same in that space? It's the same. You know, the thing is, if what's happening in the room isn't engaging enough, isn't exciting enough, any person with a smartphone, regardless of age, is going to be looking at their smartphone. I mean, you and I have been to educator conferences where we've been in workshops where we're like, oh, man, this is – I am not engaged. And we pull out our cell Terrible. phones. <laughs> right? Um, it's that or walk out of the room. And sometimes you're in the front row and you're stuck. And you, <laughs> you have to – you know, I would argue looking at your phone is just as disrespectful. Um having been on the other end of that. But I think the difference is older people or professional people who have a little more work experience or or social experience, if they don't have access to their cell phones, um, they're a little more comfortable with just being alone with themselves or with the people in the room. Like they can go, okay, I don't have my cell phone, moving on. Whereas younger folks, and the studies back this up, this nomophobia is the word for this now, uh, fear of being away from your cell phone. Um, They literally have an amygdala response to not being able to put their hands on their phone and see what's happening in the world and what their friends are doing. It literally is a fight or flight response for them. And their anxiety goes up and they cannot function. They certainly can't learn or problem solve or critically think, right? It's no different than being under any other kind of stress. The younger folks, I think, struggle more with that. But in a corporate space, um, they seem to have a little more self-regulation and um, their use of their cell phones or their social media is typically very intentional. If they're Snapchatting, tweeting, Instagramming, usually it has to do 
with something for the company. <laughs> they're promoting this workshop that they're in. They're showing what a great time everybody's having. Thank you, human resources, right? Like there is intention behind right. it, almost always related to the, you know, the money. <laughs> yeah, everybody's Whereas, sucking up basically. Yes. Hey, thanks for sending me to this conference. Exactly, exactly. Whereas young people are honestly just trying to, to find like some psychological safety because being just themselves existing is, is almost too much for them to bear. So speaking of that psychological safety, I've looked at a lot of the research on social media addiction. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is like a lot of the people that are addicted are young adults. Like those those are the highest percentage of addicts followed by retirees and unemployed adults. Believe it Mm -hmm. or not, working age adults are the least likely to be addicted to social media, their cell phone. Mm -hmm. What consequences do you see this having kind of on your kids, but but also on society as a whole, this whole thing where we're addicted to this. Like you said, this whole like psychological mm-hmm. affirmation, we have to have it at that moment. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely an addiction with all the negative consequences of any, any addiction, anything that affects your quality of life um, is no good. And with young people in my classroom, so I'm, I'm really thinking about what we call traditional college students. What I see is... When I do ask them to sort of be with me, put the phones down, there's something important happening, or we're doing a, you know, we're doing a creative writing thing, I want you to be mindful right now, um, they get very anxious. They cannot be alone with their own thoughts. They cannot sit quietly before class begins without looking at their phone. Um, it feels, I've asked, I've pointed that out to them and I've asked them, what's that about? Like, why, why are you all staring at your phones right now? And they, they're like, anybody who's like just sitting there looking around and not at their phone, they're a creeper. Like they're a weirdo because it's so weird to them to see that. You know how when you're in line at the DMV or something, you just, you just stand in line. You're just there in line, silently judging everybody's outfits, but you're there, you know, like you're just, (laughs) you're just there. I was at an amusement park last weekend with a colleague and we were just in line. We were waiting 45 minutes for roller coasters and we just stood there in line silently sometimes. All the young people around us in groups that had gone to the park together were just staring at their phones, waiting in line. The way they describe it to me is just being there alone with your own thoughts is like a feeling like claustrophobia. It's just too anxious. It's too much. So what I see from that happening is that my students, especially in the last three years, I have noticed this increasing. They, they do not have the attention capacity to sit and think deeply about anything for very long. They really can't dedicate more than a a minute or two to thinking deeply about a problem or trying to solve a problem. They just, they want to look up the answer or get the answer for me and then go back to do it. It's quick, 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 quick. Just sitting quietly and thinking through a difficult situation or a difficult plan or a strategy is a real struggle for them. That is terrifying to me. So on a communication level, though, do you think that that's somewhat caused by lack of like the actual physical talking out a problem with another human being? Like when we were kids and growing up and even now, if I have yeah. an issue or I'm thinking about something, I go to one of my friends and say, hey, what do you think about this? Start bouncing mm-hmm. ideas off of each other. And, and mm-hmm. we're both thinking about putting more than one head together instead of just looking it up on or trying to find the answer on our phone, that instant gratification. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that that, that communication piece is kind of dead? Because we got, like you said, before your class is silent. Before my classes, it's silent. Kids are on their devices. Yeah. It's quiet. We were loud as all get out. We talked to every <laughs> single human in the class. The teacher walked mm-hmm. in and it was a zoo. So like, mm-hmm. what's the, do you think that has had, that has something to do with that not being able to focus for a couple minutes? I think it does. I think it does. Now they have shifted a lot of that social interaction, you know, sort of polling your friends for support or for feedback. That's happening on their social media apps. They are still asking their friends opinions about things. They're just doing it in a very different way. And it looks very different because it's all on a screen. They are still interacting. Um, And there's a benefit to that too, is that they're not just interacting with their close friend group. They're sort of, uh, you know, indirectly reacting with or interacting with everybody on the internet who might have an opinion about that thing. Arguably, that's not always good, but I don't think that they're making decisions in vacuums. I still think they're, uh, they're still collecting information. It just looks very different. Where I see it having an impact is in their, their self-confidence when they do need to speak. Um, I have noticed much less eye contact from students. They have a really hard time just looking at me. Um, Now, again, this is following, for many of them, two years of being online for high school. Um, Because the generation I have right now just did their junior and senior year during the pandemic. So that's a perfect storm, right? But even before that, lack of eye contact, um, they will have a problem at their desk that could easily be fixed if they just ask um, I don't even, I don't require hand raising, you know, just ask Dr. M what's up with this and I'll help you. They just won't ask. They'll sit quietly, look at their phone until class is over. And I'll say, Hey, where's, where's your assignment? I didn't see you hand it in. And they're like, Oh, I, I got stuck. I didn't know how to double space. Like, well, why didn't you ask? Mm, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't want, you know, they can't even articulate yeah. that they were nervous about it because that like they're, they're afraid of their own voices. They're afraid of, of, you know, taking up space. And so, that I see is a, is a problem. Um, I worry about them going forward because they may not have instructors or supervisors or just, you know, relationships where people are going to prod them and go, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? Do you need something? Um, they're going to have to be much more proactive about advocating for what they need. And social media is not preparing them to do that. They are losing that skill. So in, in kind of in that line, uh, one of the most interesting reports I've seen lately is from the U.S. Surgeon General on loneliness. Uh, he's done a lot of work on yep. that. And he just put out this pretty long report basically saying that loneliness is actually costing us uh, more than almost anything else in terms of like actual cost to health care providers to the, for the government. So in the report, he actually says that people who spend more than two hours a day on social media reported significant levels of loneliness and social mm-hmm. isolation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to note at this point that the average social media user spends two hours and 24 minutes a day just on social media apps. Wow. That is the average social media user. And again, that also means that half of social media u- users are using it more than that. So it's almost like the thing that we designed to keep us socially connected is doing the exact opposite and killing us in the process, literally killing us. Same report says that social isolation and loneliness is now deadlier than smoking almost a pack a day of cigarettes. So I guess my question is, number one, I I think you're seeing that. 
But where do we go from here? What do we do? Because, I mean, I, I saw the, the other half of that is that while they're, we're using social media two hours and 24 minutes, the average person in the United States consumes six hours of, of some kind of digital media a day. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from there? Where do we go from here? <laughs> it's so depressing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, okay, I'll, I'll tell you why I have hope. Because I... <laughs> I allow my students to choose their essay topics. They have to stick within the mode, right? Whether it's compare and contrast or whatever. But I let them choose what they want to write about. And the most popular topic for the last four years, five years, has been the effect of social media. And they choose it. You know, I'm not offering it to them on a list. They come up with this. And what they want to talk about, what they want to research is the effect of social media on body image, the effect of social media on mental health, the effect of social media on self-esteem, the effect of social media on interpersonal relationships. These are their ideas because what they have learned from being on social media as long as they have is that they are suffering from it. They feel it in themselves. They see it in their friends and they want to think about it and read about it and understand it. So I have hope because this particular group They are doing things like setting regulations on their phone that let them know you've been on TikTok for two hours or you've been on such and such for 30 minutes. They're opting into those things because they see the impact it's having on their own state of mind and how they see themselves and they don't like it. So you know how, you know, the parenting pendulum swings, right? Mm -hmm. I look around right now in a restaurant or you know, uh, just cars passing on the highway and every kid has a screen. Um, the entire time they're sitting in a restaurant, they're in front of a screen. Um, and those are parents that are my age. But I think the students I'm teaching now, when they have elementary school age children, I think they're going to limit screen time much more than my generation does. I think they're hyper aware of the impact because they feel it. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. They are consuming so many images and, you know, influencer garbage that I, on the outside, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're consuming this. You know what it's doing. And they're telling me, we know exactly what this is doing. We know that seeing these images and hearing what these people have to say makes us feel bad about ourselves. They are aware of it. So I'm hopeful that they are going to be better at self-regulating and, and finding some kind of balance. One of the things uh, you know you just mentioned talked about you know you talked about the mental health and one of the mm-hmm. one of the questions we asked our teachers here in um, Missouri where we kind of did this survey uh, about you know the impacts of social media and what they had on our kids. Um, one of them was the question we had was basically it was like, hey, social media negatively impacts student mental health and. Mm-hmm. In the end, 65% of our teachers strongly agreed with that. 26% agreed with that. And we only had, uh, it was less than a percent that didn't disagree or that disagreed or strongly disagreed. I mean, we're talking like we might have actually hit the wrong button. I'll say that sounds like a margin of error. Yeah, like <laughs> I can't imagine anybody. Like, so answering think, that any other way but but, but the, I, I guess like we all know it's bad and i'm glad that your students realize that mm-hmm. uh the one like age group that i think we, we haven't really talked about is we're focusing a lot on kids 
is mm-hmm. older adults. Like you talk to an older adult, they, they don't know it's bad. Like they just, oh, it's like mm-hmm. on, it's like constant, like uh, social media addiction is very high among retirees, which I would have never thought, but mm-hmm. it's like considering like the technological factor of it, but it is huge. And mm-hmm. the, the amount of media that's consumed there, what do we do with that generation of folks? How do you educate those people? Like, how do you, how do you get that across? Like, this is actually bad for you. So maybe, mm-hmm. you know, go do something else. Like get off your phone, mm-hmm. stop watching the, you know, YouTube. Cause I will say even <laughs> in my, even in, in my own experience, a lot of my older relatives, it's like mm-hmm. YouTube nonstop. I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't I'm like, if I watch five minutes of YouTube a day and they're watching hours of it end on mm-hmm. end, different podcasts and, you know, news outlets all on YouTube. Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways I think it's, it's good. You know, my mom and dad are 65, 66 and they use social media. I don't have any social media. Uh, I don't have room for it in my life, but my retired parents do. And they spend a lot of time looking at their phones. Um, and in some ways, that's made me really happy because the things that they are seeing and learning about um, are opening up their world and expanding their minds and helping them to become a little more, um, you know, culturally competent. But that being said, I don't th- so I don't think the problem is the apps. I, the algorithms are the problem. The, the the system is set up to keep feeding information keep feeding images. And so there are no exit ramps built in there. The reason they're on TikTok or YouTube for hours is because there's no exit ramp. You're going to get fed videos as long as you're breathing. They're just going to keep coming. Well, the algorithm picks up what you like or you have watched in the past. So, you know, it it will feed you if you're, you know, say you're prone to left-wing politics or right-wing politics. Mm -hmm. That's what it's going to feed you. It's not going to give you a middle opinion. It's not going to give you anything else. It's going to give you exactly what you've been watching. Mm -hmm. I watch, you know, TikTok is especially notorious because even if you try to get Mm -hmm. out of it, you're like, swipe, get out of the app. And it gives you like, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, let's make you swipe four or five more times to get out of here. It's like yeah. a casino. It's like there's no exit door. Like, where's it at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's monstrous. <laughs> you know, it's how the echo chambers have come to be. It's how our politics are in the situation that they're in, which we won't go into in this podcast. But um, I think social media. I don't think you know studies have proven social media are a big reason that our our country is more divided now than it has been in the past. When I have tried to get my mom off her phone, for example, and tell her, this isn't good for you. You're not interacting with the world. Put your phone down. Her argument is, I'm interacting with the world more than I ever have in my life. How, how do you not see it that way? And she does make a point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's subjective whether or not it's bad for them or not. In their mind, they don't care about the science. It, they're enjoying themselves and they're having a good time with it. Why does it matter? Um, just like I, I do with younger people, I try to encourage them to be mindful because time is fleeting and you only have this. Um, it's on me as an educator when I'm in the room to be more entertaining than whatever's happening on their phones. That is a lot of pressure, it's but I work really hard at doing that. Um, if anything, I you know our, my tasks are five minutes long. Like I keep things moving just so they're on their toes all the time. With older people who are retired, is there anything going on in their lives that competes with that constant barrage of images? I don't know. And I don't know how we give that to them. If that's our goal, um, what do we replace that with? 
So that's kind of the question. So you, like you said, you know, we, we especially you know, people even in our generation, we're like, well, this is how I experience life. This I enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Why should I give it up? Why should I give it up? Mm-hmm. I, I think I enjoy it. Whether we are mentally, <laughs> our mental health is actually made right. better by it or not, even though we kind of, all the studies kind of show it's not being made better by it. We yeah. all kind of believe it's kind of like, like we all yeah. think we're cigarettes help me relax. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. so that's a great. Yeah. I'm a great multitasker. Yeah. I can do they, all this. They, at once. I calm no down when can, I smoke. Right? It's good for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, this is the big, like, a couple of the big things that that I I, I come back to. In 1990, the number of people that reported that they had no friends was only three percent of the country. Wow. Two years ago, it was up to twelve percent, quadrupled. And the number of people in 1990 that reported that they had a lot of friends was 33% of the country, which is a, a, a good, you know, good chunk. Yeah. That was down to 13%. So we had cut that mm-hmm. by two thirds in 30 years. And in 2004, yeah. and we're talking like the dawn of like real social media, the average American spent 60 hours a month hanging out with their friends or in direct communication with their friends Pre-pandemic study, we're talking like before the actual pandemic, early 2020, Mm -hmm. that number was down to 20 hours a month. Mm. So I have a hard time like sitting there like, how is that, how is that not affecting us having real life Mm in-person contact? And I think that we lose a lot of that ability to communicate, Mm -hmm. like true communication, because there's a lot more to communication than typing on a screen. You know, you got body language, physical touch. There's a lot more to it. And I think we've seen a lot of the, why some of the discourse and why people treat each other, there's a lot of the bullying mm-hmm. that goes on is because well, online there's no repercussions and you don't see that person. They've so been dehumanized. It's been dehumanized and we're not spending enough yeah. time with other humans to make yeah. up for that. So is that another part of, you know, how, what we, what can we do to be better? You know, it makes me think of, I'm an introvert. And I know I became an educator. It's a long story, but I'm an introvert. I prefer to be alone um, and read and, you know, walk in the woods. Um, and so when somebody calls me up and says, let's go out or you want to come to this party or we're all going to meet for drinks, my first reaction is, ugh, ugh. you know, I'm, I start looking for excuses right away. But when I get talked into it and I show up, um, I have a lovely time and I'm always glad that I did it. And it's a rich meaningful, lovely experience. And I just have to be reminded of that as an introvert. Sometimes I do need social interaction to remember how to people in the world. I think if our retirees had more opportunities to remember what that's like to engage with other people and feel that richness, um, you know, all that nonverbal communication that you're talking about, um, then it would be clear to them that that is a much more fulfilling, rewarding experience than you know, using the social media app, but those opportunities have to be there for them. Looking back, like even in that same vein, looking back to, you know, 20 years ago or when, you know, you and I were college students and versus your kids now, what mm-hmm. is this, is the a level of social awareness dropped in that time? Uh, tell me more about what you mean by social awareness. Like the ability to recognize when other people are hurt or mm. to understand their emotions and what mm-hmm. they're going through at that moment. Or oh, they're terrible at it. They're terrible at it. Um, I wonder 
and I'm speaking out of turn here because I'm certainly not an expert, but I wonder if some of my students have been misdiagnosed with autism spectrum disorder um, because they will often come to me with that diagnosis. And I've been teaching since, you know, 2004. I, I know autism doesn't have a, an exact, you know, list of, of symptoms that you can recognize that every person looks a little different, but mm. students that I would never identify as having autism spectrum disorder will give me that diagnosis. And I'll, I'll talk to them a bit about how I can help them in class. And mostly it's, you know, trouble with social cues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking, well, ma maybe that's something we can work on. Like that's probably a skill we can help you develop while we're here. Um, my students are terrible at reading social cues and, um, really struggle when they are experiencing a strong emotion, whether it's anger or fear, um, negative emotions, really. Uh, they have a hard time experiencing those things publicly. Um, they are obviously under stress sometimes because they're in college and they have exams and jobs and things going on, and um, they will would rather drop the class than be caught crying in class because they're overwhelmed. I mean, they just, the, the world outside of their phones, outside of that social media place, um, they feel like they have to take up as little space as possible. Like it doesn't feel safe to them there. Hmm. That's interesting because you hear that, especially from this, from the current generation of kids that are in college, you hear that, that kind of being said a lot, even by them. So yeah. I, I think that's definitely, yeah. definitely something that, to look at for the future. And, I, and one of the things is, is the idea that we're raising our kids on these devices that we are giving it to the most, uh, 95% of 13 to 17 year olds currently are on a social media. They currently have one. And those are the ones that are legally allowed to have it. Although there is no checks and balances for an 11 year old that wants to get on social media. They can do it right. too. Most of my kids right. who are 11 and 12 have social media. Yeah. But raising them on that, are we raising more and more kids to be dependent and addicted? And if we are, is there, should the government, should some entity that has authority say, okay, we've got to start looking at regulating this? There's not been a meaningful regulation of any of the internet since 1996, long before any of this right, right. became a problem. Yeah. That's a big question, Andy. I mean, yeah. my students are actually talking about this right now in relation to AI, because that's the next frontier of should we regulate what's going to happen. And so I share no, with them all the Terminator these. bots. Those are bad. Right. I, I, yeah, I share that with them the news movies. story. <laughs> I'm like, well, according to the father of AI, uh, we're all duped. Like this is, we're, we're moments from extinction. So do what you want. YOLO. Um, and then they laugh at me for still using YOLO. Um, I don't know. You know, I think it's, it's another one of those like, it's going to be a state by state thing because some people want more regulation than others. I, I don't have social media. I think my life as a teacher would be better without social media in the classroom. Um, I don't know. I'm not a parent, so I can't say that how I would feel if there were certainly if there were regulations about what my child could or couldn't do. Um, and I'd want to make that decision as a parent. I don't know how I would react because I have a different perspective. I'm a teacher. I see exactly what it's doing to their brains. <laughs> I've read the research. Um, you know, if I, if I didn't have that information, I may not make the same call. So I can't really speak to that, but 
there, you know, there has to be just as there were with cigarettes, just as there is with corn syrup, just as there is with wearing helmets on motorcycles and bicycles. And, um, there has to be more information made available first. I don't think the average parent knows how damaging constant exposure to screens and social media and influencers and all that is. I don't think they know. I think they have a general kind of like, yeah, it's probably too much screen time, you know, probably still like getting quiet at the restaurant. You know, so here you go. Too much sugar, I know. But if they really knew the long-term effects that we're just now starting to get because now the data is coming, right? I think they would make different choices. So maybe start with awareness and information before we start regulating. But um, it's like with anything, there are going to be people that are resistant to common sense. For sure, for sure. So I know yeah. we've kind of focused a lot on the, the negative impacts of the uh, the technology. Mm-hmm. But what do you see as like some of the benefits of it? What good is actually coming from social media? Is there any good? Is it is it is it all bad? Yeah, there's there's some good. There's lots of good actually. Um, students, and if we're talking particularly in the classroom, they have access to um, more resources than ever before. They can communicate with each other. Um, you know, social media is great if, if they want to be involved in activism, if they want to be involved in social issues, if they want to find out what's going on politically around. Um, they are just more connected. Before, they would have had to be very proactive and go out and learn those things. Um, but now a lot of that's just coming to them right on their phones. It takes a very a little small world. So I, I teach in Lewis and Clark College, which is in Godfrey, Illinois. So we're talking maybe... 20 minutes from St. Louis and I teach at uh, Missouri Baptist University and I teach in the K-12 school district, uh, St. Louis public schools. So I see urban schools, I see rural schools, I see suburban schools and all those little worlds can be pretty small, especially for students. They're kind of in their own little community and their family and friends and neighborhood in many cases. They don't really look beyond. And social media expands their worlds. And I, I think that's always good. It's, you know, it's like what books did for us when we were kids, right? Like I was in my little small town and books gave me access to a much broader world and made me think about the world differently. I think social media can do that. I think it does that. For a lot of my students. Um, I don't want to veer into negative. You asked for positive. Let me keep thinking about <laughs> so, what about, so one of the things that I, I, I have read and I've seen uh, for marginalized teens and, and people who are physically disabled, it mm-hmm. allows support groups and to people to find community that may be in an area where they just don't have enough physical community for people like them. So that was one of the things that I've seen that in terms of like positive mental health benefits, it's one of the few that I've seen. I mean, I think we still all need to get outside and do the things and Mm -hmm. be social, but at the same time for people who need someone to talk to that is Mm -hmm. like them, that some of these support groups on social media have helped them quite a bit. Absolutely. There's anybody can find a community around anything whether it's a positive or a negative aspect of their life, there's a community that they can tap into and get some affirmation. And, you know, I think about um, friends of mine who grew up LGBTQ in communities where that was just not acceptable. And had they had access to the internet in their pocket when we were in school and been able to see 
people, adults living healthy, happy lives that, that, it, you know, a model of what their life could be one day, that would have been life-changing for them. Absolutely. And that's, and that's kind of was, was my only like, hint. Well, I was like, well, maybe we should have some kind of age restriction. And then I was mm-hmm. like, well, what about, what about these kids? You know, what about the yeah. kids that, that need to find that community outside of what they're, what's available in their hometown or what, mm-hmm. in their neighborhood, like you said. So I, I, I've, you know, gone through my head, like, how would you, how would you do that? And also help the the majority of the population not be addicted to this product. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I do think, I do think that social media is the cigarettes of our day. Like it is the cigarettes uh-huh. of our day. I think, the, yeah. I think the tech companies act a lot like big tobacco did back in the day. Like, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah regulation. Oh, we don't. Yeah. That. Yeah. You, why would you want to regulate this? It makes you feel good. It's not addictive. I mean, Bob Dole, Bob Dole, who ran for president in 1996, was still going on the campaign trail with all his big tobacco money in his pocket. The cigarettes, I don't think they're addictive. I don't think there's any science to go along yeah. with that. Yeah. You know, we are but, in the middle of this evolution of social media. Like, we saw the world before it and how it grew, and we are in the thick of it now. I'm hopeful that we see it wane. You know, people are turning on Twitter that I thought would never turn on Twitter. Um, Facebook is dead. My students tell me it's for old people. That's <laughs> you know? My kids don't have Facebook. They got Snapchat. Yeah. They got TikTok. Yeah. It, you know, we're we're seeing it happen. In hindsight, we'll be able to look back at this and 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 obviously see the missteps and the wrong turns. And um, but we are right smack in the middle of it. And I think educators have their fingers on the pulse of this and they see the dangers. Obviously, you know, doctors and researchers are aware of it. I, I, I agree with you that this is like the cigarette problem of this particular generation because it seems so innocuous and like, what's the big deal, you know? But right. the, everybody does and, it. We all have it. Yeah, everybody does it. And, and my the argument that I hear the most, you know, when I have friends my age with children that are young and they're like, you know, they really want a cell phone. They're turning 12. How do I tell them no when they're literally the only person in their class who doesn't have one? Like they are the one kid who doesn't get the birthday party invite in the text message because they don't have a phone. Like there's this pressure on parents to help their kids fit in and feel part of the the group and you know my inclination because the way I was raised was screw it they don't need to be a part of the group wave their freak (laughs) flag you know go read a book but again I don't have kids and I know I don't know what it's like to have you know to want to help your kid fit in and not be ostracized and so I don't know how to answer that argument with them except show them the studies (laughs) and say yes but in 10 years when your student cannot focus on anything for longer than 30 seconds. Um, you know, I cannot wait to, care. for one of my kids to ask for a cell phone. I'll be like, listen, in 10 years, you're going to thank me. Thanks. Look at this right? study. You'll see. You'll hate me now. In 10 years brain. from now. Yeah. You know what we need? We need a, this is your brain on social media commercial with the fried egg. Remember oh, that? Yeah, that, that, that worked real, real well. Yeah. And I, I swore off drugs after that. I was like, yeah. what? Breakfast? Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that being said, we've talked a little, we've talked a little, a little bit about the good. Does any, does the good outweigh the bad when it comes to social media? I mean, I'm a cynic by nature. Um, my first reaction is no, it's awful. It has to go. Um, 
But isn't that what every old English teacher says about every new technology? <laughs> Yeah, it, it kind of I'm is. a stereotype. So I'm, yeah. I'm like internet. What we're going to use this word processor? Um, yeah, it's basically about typewriters still. In the class. I know, right? We're going to write it by hand in cursive, um, in a blue book. I I don't know that the good outweighs the bad. I can't, in good conscience, say that it does. And I think that that's where I, I've really landed hard on that because it's just yeah. there's just so much addiction that goes along with it. And yeah. if we forget how to interact in person, I think we've got a lot of other things going on in our society that are actually leaning mm-hmm. us away from talking to each other and yeah. interacting with each other. I mean, half of corporate America now works from home. Like, how do you yeah. make friends from the four walls of your house? It's, you know, I feel like you, like going to work was not just a working experience. It's still a social experience mm-hmm. where you at least learn how to interact with a human being. Oh, can right? I, I want to add something to that. Is that a, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. When we came back from the pandemic, um, at one of my campuses, students were given the choice. They could take a, they could come back to class in person, they could stay online, or they could do a hybrid. And students overwhelmingly chose to come back in person because they missed social interaction. Despite the parking, despite the cost, despite the travel, despite having to look their teachers in the eyes, they wanted to come back and be in person. So that gives me hope too, that they're not avoiding social interaction. They're not avoiding situations where they have to be around people. Um, they're just still, they're like relearning how to do it. Yeah. And that gave me some hope too with, with the pandemic, with the, most of the parents wanting their kids to come back because they realized the yeah. things that their kids were missing. And a lot mm-hmm. of that is that social emotional learning piece that yep. you need to be around other people to learn. You don't just learn it in a vacuum. So yeah, yeah that definitely, it's almost like Dewey was onto something. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time today. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Massey, for being here with us. And thank you for listening to MNEA Connects. And we will see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe and listen to wherever you get your podcasts.